0: Welcome back to another episode For the podcast of my book Hopeless Romantic The Untold History of Ethiopia I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast We're going strong We're going uh, uh, back to our regular schedule um, We Last time we started talking about chapter 4 Uh, You and uh, and me against the world And uh, today we're continuing with that chapter Uh, Once again I want to encourage everybody to share the podcast Let people know what we're talking about This is a very intriguing uh, episode Of course uh, um, last time we talked about it The sensational tale of Kalib And today we're kind of continuing off of that But before... We get into anything serious. You know what time it is. We always start off with a prayer. Today's not different. Let's gather our thoughts for prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, I mean, holy, holy, holy is your name, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, God. I ask you to, to help us get through this podcast, give us wisdom, give us, um, uh, guide us along the way, God. We ask that. You help people learn about their history and and make it be something positive for our society. Heavenly Father, we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and in the intercession of the Virgin Mary and the angels and the saints, we pray. Amen. Once again, uh, I just want to encourage everybody to uh, make sure that you buy the book. Make sure you buy the book, not just kind of sit back and, and listen to it. Uh. Uh, if you want to support, you can follow me on Instagram at d mulino or Twitter at mulina 6 Or uh, uh, if you want to become a patron, you can go on patreon.podme.com forward slash Once again, uh, for those of you who are already a patron, I want to take the second to say uh, thank you for all your support. Um, Let's get right into the episode for today. We have a lot of things to cover. Again, uh, last time we we talked about the sensational tale of Caleb and 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 how this story was, you know, it's worth. It's like a Disney like movie, uh, where you know he took this dramatic journey expedition to the region of Hamar and saved the uh, Christians who were being persecuted. Um, And some of the things that we talked about last time is actually we're going to expand on that idea is how uh, in that story, uh, Egypt, along with Rome and other Christian countries, were nowhere to be found when Khalid started his journey to South Arabia. That is they initially promised some type of aid. Especially uh, Rome did. Rome promised Kaleb they would assist him in his expedition to South Arabia, but they didn't. They did not send help, and of course we said that the letter, which Justin in the uh, first sent to Kaleb, was hand delivered by the Egyptian uh, bishop. Signaling that also the Egyptians were in favor of this expedition down to South Arabia But they also did nothing, they did not help Again, uh, this is particularly noteworthy because Egypt was supposed to serve as the mother church to Ethiopia if you recall from the previous chapter, Frumentius or Frimanatos in the Ethiopian tradition was a foreigner who came to the scene of Ethiopia in the earlier half of the 4th century. The sources we have to construct the life of the saint uh, states that after he spent a few years in Ethiopia, he journeyed to the Alexandrian church, that is the Egyptian church, to seek assistance in spreading the message of Christianity for the Ethiopians. Nonetheless, Fremenad, also from depending on which tradition you want to follow, was the one who ended up being appointed to the first bishopric of Ethiopia. Soon after, he returned and continued to spread the message of Christianity. So this is kind of, the writing, uh, the written sources we have about Fremenatos. And this is what we find in the written sources. Based on this, this is where we get the life of Fremenatos from. Based on these writings. Well, what is interesting is the in the Gittes tradition, uh, the story of Fremenatos concludes in the following way. And I'm just going to read the English. You guys could go back to the book. And read the Giz if you want to find it. But it says. One man whose name was Rufinus. Reported all the matters. About our father from Having heard it all. From another man named Odysseus. This is. Is our father Fermentius, and this is the part I want everybody to f- focus on, the first bishop for the land of Agaazi, which translates to the other name for Ethiopia, or just the land of the free, the free. And while he was in the land of Greece, he was appointed for the land of Agaazi, and here as well the diptychs we find is inscribed that he was the first. He was the first good yeast that came to the land. Of Aga-Azi. Now, here's what you need to get out of this passage. Number one, based on this concluding formula in the Ethiopic tradition, Fermentius was the first bishop of Ethiopia. Number two, he was a foreigner to Ethiopia and yet appointed by Egypt to become a bishop. And number three, because of him, Christianity spread. Because he was the first yeast. Now, interestingly, this concluding formula for the life of Fermentius is not found in the sources used for original translations. As indicated in the entry of the Gitt's tradition, the story of Fermentius is given by the historian Rufinus or Rufanos, who himself is claiming to have heard this account from Odysseus. I know these are a lot of names, but stick with me here. There's a point that I'm trying to get, and I promise it's pretty intriguing. Initially, however, the Ethiopic version of the life of, of Fermentius was translated from the much earlier Greek version recorded in the ecclesiastical history of Socrates Scholasticus, Chapter uh, uh, 1.19. And in that version, this is how the concluding formula uh, ends. It says, And Rufinus says that he has heard these things from Odysseus, who afterward was made worthy of the office of priesthood of Tyre. This is the last we hear from Mencius. In the Greek version, the earlier version of which the is version was translated from, there is no mention of the supposed precedence to appointing a foreign official as a bishop for the people of Ethiopia, nor any suggestion of a long-term commitment between Egypt and Ethiopia is hinted. I can't emphasize this enough. This is is the text that is often cited as explanation for why Ethiopians had to receive bishops from Egypt. But, the original Greek version of the text never suggests of a long-term commitment that needed to be made between the two nations, leaving us to wonder Who would add another, longer version in the Ethiopian tradition to suggest some form of a long-term commitment between the Egyptians and the Ethiopians? Who would benefit from adding this extra bit of information we find in the Ethiopian tradition? Although the data we have currently cannot verify the identity of the person responsible, we can, however, make an educated assumption Of who would be responsible for uh, such a thing. Surely Egypt benefited from the relationship established with Ethiopia. It is widely known that for the Ethiopian Christians to receive a bishop from the Egyptian church. They often had to present many gifts to the church like gold, ivory, and silver were expected to pay taxes. But it didn't stop here. In order to cement this advantageous relationship, early Egyptian authors falsified Ethiopian Christian texts to make them believe Ethiopian Christians had to be dependent on the Egyptian church. A clear example of such a falsified Ethiopian Christian text is the Fetahanegist. I know, I know. Some people might be surprised to hear this and protest that how could you say parts of Fittahanagus is falsified. But there is no doubt that at least a part of Fittahanagus was deliberately forged to give the false pretense that Ethiopians were subservient. And if you do not know, the Fittahanagus is one of the more popular Christian texts in Ethiopia. Most members of the church regard the text as being inspired by the Holy Spirit, although it is clear that at least certain sections of it is not, and the section that I'm specifically referring to reads in part, And let the people of Ethiopia not appoint an archbishop upon them from among their learned ones nor by their own desire, since their bishop is appointed by the hands of the chief of Alexandria, that is, the archbishop of Egypt or the Coptic church. He is the one who is deserving to appoint over them a bishop, who in turn is below the archbishop. This is Phetanagest chapter 4, verse 50. You could look at it yourself. Obviously, This does not sound like the voice of the Holy Spirit. Instead, it sounds like a group of people interested in continuing to exploit the Ethiopian Christians. These type of texts, which the Ethiopians were led to believe were in fact spiritual words inspired by God, are the reason the relationship between Egypt and Ethiopia Continued until the consecration of the first Ethiopian patriarch, Abu Nabazlios, in 1959. Until this period, however, the Ethiopians were able to receive a bishop only through this undue tradition set up by the extra bit found in the life of Fermentius. Perhaps it would have been easy to consider these events a thing of the past if the Egyptians had kept their end of the bargain after receiving the offerings of Ethiopia. That is, once they received this uh, gold and ivory and silver and whatnot, if the Egyptians had sent a bishop right away and uh, Egyptian bishops uh, did their due diligence to expand Christianity in Ethiopia, It would be easier to kind of look the other way and and, and not make a big deal about all this. However, there is no denying that some of the Egyptian bishops who made their way to Ethiopia were able to perform their... uh, were able to uh, kind of do a lot of harm to the region. Now, some did do do their due diligence and they did perform their bishop responsibilities but some did not and they did some horrible things even though they were sent from Egypt, appointed by Egypt to expand Christianity in Ethiopia. One of the occurrences that stand out from all the others is the advent of the infamous Abdun. Although he was not even a Christian much less a bishop he presented himself to the Ethiopians as having been sent from the Coptic church in accordance with the tradition. As you may imagine, the Ethiopians became suspicious and began to interrogate him. Worried his plan might be jeopardized, he begged the leader of Egypt, who was a Muslim at the time, to force the Coptic church into confirming his bishopric status. Unfortunately for Abdun, His plan did not work, and eventually he was exiled from Ethiopia. Now, I know what you're thinking. Clearly, this is a deranged individual and does not reflect the way the Egyptians viewed Ethiopians. Much more, Abdoun was not a Christian and could not possibly be a fair depiction of the Coptic church at the time. Well, in the history of the patriarchs of the Egyptian church, the histo- historian Mahoub Ibn Mansour gives a different account of a bishop who was really a Christian and was sent to Ethiopia to establish mosques in Ethiopia. I can't make these things up. There is nothing wrong with constructing mosques in Ethiopia, but I hope you agree with me when I say it should not be done by the hands of a Christian bishop bishop pretending to help expand the cause of Christian mission again the ordeal and the relationship with the Egyptian and Ethiopian uh, the, the problems that ensued from the Egyptian and, and Ethiopian relationship doesn't stop here some of the older Egyptian Christian literature is blatantly racist Take this account of a various popular work known as the Desert Fathers, for example. It says, and I'll quote the whole thing, After that divine and fearful Eucharist, through the faces he beheld the souls of those approaching to partake of holy mysteries as to what kind of sins each one was enthralled to, and he he saw the faces of sinners black as suit some of them had faces that looked burnt and fiery with bloodshed eyes he saw others of them with not only shining faces but white clothing then the text uh, describes the bishop is said to have seen an angel who explained to him the things he had seen in the following manner this is the the, the angel speaking to the bishop. Those with bright and shining faces are living in so- sobriety, purity, and righteousness. They're modest, compassionate, and merciful. Those who have black faces are the works of porneria, uh, licheness, uh, I don't know how to say that, and other kinds of profligacy and wantonness. Those who appear bloodshot and fury are living in knavery and wrongdoing. They are abusers, blasphemers, treacherous, and murderers. And again, the angel said to him, so now help them. If you desire their salvation this is the them being the black people so now help them if you desire their salvation for this he said is why you attend your own prayers so that learning by seeing the sense of those under instruction you may by counsels and exhortations make them better through repentance in Jesus Christ our lord who died and rose from the dead for them Here's the problem according to this text The black faces were the consequence, or perhaps punishment, for people who engaged in sinful behavior. On the contrary, those who have bright and shining faces were the ones who had been righteous. Perhaps the most disturbing part of this text is that it depicts, it depicts the state of being black as being something to resist. The panacea for the apparent harrowing black skin is to pray for these sinners and make them better through repentance in Jesus Christ our Lord. To be clear, there's nothing wrong with praying for those who may be in sinful state, but where I take issue with this text is how the sinful behavior is linked to those who have black skin. That does not sound like the message of Christ to me. But again, it doesn't stop there. Another example can be found in the writing of Moses the Black. For those of you who do not know, Moses the Black is considered to be saint both in the Coptic and Ethiopian tradition. I often wondered, why is he referred to Moses the Black? The universal response I received was that in the monastic tradition, it is often customary to refer to a person by their physical deformity. Often, the famous Didymus the Blind is given as an example of such a practice. I have to say, I'm not sure how seriously this tradition of referring to people with their physical deformity was practiced in monastic tradition. No doubt it was present, but how common was it? There was many greats, for example, St. Anthony the Great, St. Macarius the Great, St. Basil the Great, Sisyphus the Great, and so on. But how many names of monks will we find that have their physical deformities attached to their name? I, I wonder. For me, this is not the point. If we were to accept the theory that Moses was named after his physical deformity, then we have to accept that his black skin was seen as a physical deformity. That is the point. I don't know about you, but that's a bit disturbing. Doesn't it sound a bit racist? Anywho, Perhaps what is even more alarming than the little oh, or the title of his name is what was written about him in his life story. For the record, his life story was written by early Egyptian Christians. Hence, the writings depicted the attitude that existed at the time. That is part this is the part I found particularly disturbing. And this is a direct quotation from the life of uh, of Moses the Black. And again, wishing to try him, the bishop said to the clergy, when Abba Moses goes into the sac- sac- sacrarium, drive him out and go after him and hear what he said. Now, when he went into the sacrarium, they rebuked him and drove him out saying, get outside, O Ethiopian. And having gone forth, he began to say to himself, they have treated you right, rightly, all you whose skin is dark and black. You will not go back as if you were a white man. These texts unfortunately demonstrate Moses' ability to remain silent as racial slurs were being thrown at him as an act of virtue. The portrayal of Moses is perhaps even more alarming as he is not taking issue with the racial slurs but rather criticizing himself for wanting to be treated as a white man. (laughs) Someone once mentioned how it was virtuous to forgive others and not retaliate. Thus, according to the person I was talking to, Moses' ability to not retaliate should in fact be seen as a virtuous action. The problem with this idea is again with Moses' response and agreement with the inferiority of the black race. It is in fact an act of virtue to forgive the oppressor, but it is not an act of virtue to agree with oppression. In that case of Moses, the portrayal of him remaining silent and agreeing to the inferiority of the black race clearly demonstrates the attitude of early Egyptian writers had towards Ethiopians. According to them, he was not a saint who happened to be black, but rather is a saint despite being black. Get the difference? Hmm. I argue in my book, race might have something to do with why early Egyptian authors felt the need to corrupt the Ethiopian Christian literature. It appears early Egyptian authors had a prejudice against Ethiopians and their skin color. Often in the form of Christian tales, they would be able to manifest their true attitude. Sadly, in addition to this prejudice, the addendum found in the homily of Fermentius resulted in centuries long relations with Ethiopian Egypt, wherein Ethiopia was exploited tremendously. Lots of money and gifts were given to the leaders of Egypt so that they would receive the much desired bishop. As it appears, Egypt, much like Rome during the days of Kaleib, did not have the best interest of Ethiopia at heart. Ethiopia was truly on her own. The world was against her, and yet time and time again, she managed to show love towards others. Speaking of love, we should not forget that the Coptic Christians are our brothers and sisters. We are of one faith, after all. These criticisms are in no way a reflection of the people or of the Coptic church that we see today. These findings are simply a reflection of the attitude of the people that, had, uh, that existed centuries before against Ethiopians at the time the texts were being written. Now recently I had a conversation with a friend from the Coptic church. And my friend was thinking that these criticisms and these issues that I brought forth in my book are not issues worth mentioning. And he was criticizing me for shedding much light on this grim reality. Well, to me, it kind of sounds like telling African-Americans it's not worth learning about slavery or talking about injustice in America. It is an important part of our history and we need to learn about it. We need to educate uh, people about it. It's important that we don't blame current Egyptians or Coptics or Muslims for the material we find in the Egyptians authored literature. And I, I and I it's wrong. We can't blame the church today for what people wrote centuries prior to that. But I do expect current Egyptian Egyptians, especially the Copts and clergy members, to address these disturbing occurrences in the literature without apologetic rhetoric. That is, I expect the Egyptian Christians to acknowledge how these texts are not in line with Christian doctrine, and more importantly, how these texts do not signify the real attitude of the Egyptian Christians about Ethiopia. The last thing I want to mention in this episode is the legend of the so-called Prester John. Now, if you guys don't know Prester John, this is another kind of uh, beautiful story, kind of scandalous, some might say. And um, this is kind of the backstory behind it. Uh, so soon after writing the New Testament, the Western world had taken a particular interest in the tale of the three wise men who were described as having originated from the East. Of course, the term East is relative, but the Western world, especially Europe, was firm on finding this exact location. Over the time, the tale of the three wise men developed from the biblical times and was embellished to folk tales about their greatness and presumed places of origin. While these stories were developing into a sensational tale, a much grimmer reality was brewing in the Christian West at the turn of the first millennium. After Muslims had secured Jerusalem, the land thought of as a holy land, Western Christians waged a series of crusades against their perceived enemy. As you probably know from history, the Crusades were no small events. They involved lots of resources, energy, and the cooperation of the Christian world. In order to receive additional aid, several inquiries were made to the Roman Pope. Among those who appeared before the Pope was Bishop Hugh of Jabala. His request was like none before. He mentioned a certain Prester John, who is supposedly a priest from the German Prester, hence how we get the name Prester John, Priest John, and a king. In Hugh's account, this supposed Christian king resided in the east and was coming to aid the Christians in their crusading efforts. Unfortunately, per the bishop's account, this mystical king was hindered by the Tigris River. The Bishop was essentially informing the Pope that there was additional help that was supposed to have come from this Prester John, but since he couldn't cross the Tigris River, there is no one else that was expected to come to their rescue. But the Bishop's account of this Prester John did not stop there. He went on to describe the King as being a descendant of the famous Three Wise Men. If you recall, the Western world was intrigued about the wise men from the Bible, hence, the invoking of the biblical characters no doubt would have garnered more attention. Furthermore, by all reports, the genealogy of a king was a big deal in the medieval period. If a king could trace his origin to biblical characters, that meant God had appointed him to that position. Needless to say, even though the Western world was not able to receive aid from the land of Prester John at the time, their curiosity of the land of the wise men, and thereby Prester John, intensified much more. There was one small problem, however. (laughs) The tale of Prester John was entirely made up. Although we will never know why Bishop Hugh relayed this information to the Pope. Scholars believe it was meant to cause urgency for the supply of aid. That is to say, if people believed no outside force was coming to assist the Western Christian world, the Pope had to approve the requested supply of arms if he wanted to defeat the perceived enemy, that is, the Muslims. The tale of this mystical king was too scandalous to ignore nonetheless. Soon after, a forged letter in the name of the supposed Prester John circulated in Europe. This letter was embroidered with romanticized description of the king's homeland. It included tales of a flamboyant lifestyle, extravagant feasts, the land becoming that of milk and honey, and the lack of poor people among them, and so on and so forth. And upon hearing these descriptions of the famous king, the western world was determined to locate this magical place. Around the same period, Ethiopians had their eye on Europe, but for a very different reason. During the reign of King Dawit, foreign travelers are said to have arrived in Ethiopia who relayed to the king about the true cross's whereabouts. Having received this information, he sent delegates to Europe to investigate the matter. During these expeditions to Europe, the Ethiopians were believed to have been from the land of Prester John they fit the profile perfectly. The Ethiopians mentioned in the Bible were from the so-called Eastern world. They were Christians at one time were known to be a great force to be reckoned with. Indeed, the Europeans were sure they had finally found their potential ally, so much so that, in one of these visits, The Ethiopians were gathered at the court and their European hosts proceeded to read to them from the Book of the Three Kings which was the tale of Prester John and his mystical land. The implications here was that the Ethiopians weren't in fact his descendants. And and Interestingly, the Ethiopians never corrected this misunderstanding. Although the Ethiopians would not succeed in learning about the whereabouts of the True Cross in this particular expedition, the Europeans' belief in Ethiopia being the land of the long sought-out Prester John was solidifying. Soon after, Europeans made expeditions to Ethiopia to learn about this great land of milk and honey. They carefully documented their findings and related their work back to the western world. Ultimately, they came to realize the hard reality that Ethiopia was not the land of Prester John. Sadly, they had come with a preconceived notion about the land and its people, and their misconstrued writings became influential for understanding Ethiopian history. As we will see in chapters to follow, this tale presented by Westerners had devastating outcomes. I know, this was a big chapter, and there were many points to take in, but I hope you learned something. I've received some criticism from this chapter since in a way it appears like I'm playing the so-called victim card. Some have expressed to me how complaining about how others wronged us in the past will not help us move forward. I disagree with that. As I have mentioned, this book was inspired by the recent conflicts in Ethiopia and most people are divided because of ethnicity. That is, they are led to believe their neighbors are also their enemy. As I will continue to show throughout this podcast, I believe there were other factors that led us to divide. and Moreover, it was outside forces that played a larger role to the deterioration of Ethiopia and Ethiopians. Lastly, in society, we cannot expect someone who has been wronged to remain silent. Again, I have to go back to the black life movement. Can you imagine if people were asked not to express their grievance during the peak of the BLM movement? I feel the same way with Ethiopian history. We have to be empowered to speak up and voice our grievance. As cliche as it may sound, knowledge is power. We must learn the true cause of our problems. And when we do, maybe, just maybe, we can unite and begin to heal once again i hope you learned something and uh i'll see you next time